Uh, back in 2019, which feels like five years ago, but just last year in 2019, there was a major research conducted by the Pew Research Company. And Pew Research uh, polled America and found that two-thirds of Americans strongly believe that faith and politics don't go together. Now think about that for just a moment. That's Two out of every three, for those who didn't do well with fractions back in you know, school, uh, two out of every three people in America say that they strongly believe that faith and politics do not go together. So naturally, I thought it was a great thing to do a series all about faith and politics uh, because so many people apparently have a misunderstanding about it. Uh, Two thirds of people have a gross misunderstanding, uh, even believing that faith can be separated from politics uh, because that's actually an impossibility. The fact that someone's faith or lack of faith uh, exists or doesn't exist, the one thing that is certain, whether you have faith or you have no faith or you claim to have absence of faith in your life, that faith or absence of faith, it colors how you see everything. It colors how everybody sees everything, including the way they see the world politically. So whether you claim to be a person of faith or you claim to be a person of no faith or little faith or average faith or middle faith, whatever kind of faith or lack of faith that you or I claim to have, it affects entirely the way that we see the world and it affects entirely the way that we see the world politically in our 21st century context. So there's a lot of folks out there who believe that faith and uh, politics don't go together. And it was Albert Einstein who was later echoed by Gandhi. He said that for all the people who say they don't believe that faith and politics go together, they don't understand faith nor politics because you can't separate the two. And that's why it's really important that we talk about this, especially in the season that we're in. Now, next week, we are ending this series. And I know for some of you, that is the best news you've heard in a long time. Uh, It's going to be the Sunday before the election. And so I'm going to try to get as practical as possible next week, as some of you, maybe just a few of you are left to vote because 50 million people have already decided what they're going to do this November election season. So we're going to talk about that next week. And it just won't be helpful as we head in to two but it'll be helpful, I think, in all the future seasons of our life. And then besides that, this series, I think, has been a little bit fun. Maybe not for you, but it has been for me uh, because they tell me that all the chatter that's out there online is half the people think that I'm for Biden and half of the people think that I'm for Trump. And so apparently... uh, I am doing a decent job of confusing everybody that's in the audience. So uh, that's fun for me and and I enjoy that. So, but anyway, uh, this whole series, it was sparked by one particular verse uh, that's in the book of Jeremiah. And the verse is found in Jeremiah chapter 12. and, And these are the words recorded that God spoke. He says, if racing against mere men makes you tired, how will you race against horses? If you stumble and fall on the open ground, what will you do in the thickets or the jungle near the Jordan? Uh, These were the the words that God spoke to Jeremiah when Jeremiah was at an all-time low. He he was ready to quit. He was ready to walk away. Uh, He was ready to forfeit God's purpose for his life. He was in a full-blown crisis of cynicism in Jeremiah chapter 12. He was negative Nancy about everything. He was frustrated. He was angry. He was growing more hostile hostile every day towards certain people that he thought were the problem. He was disillusioned with life. He was disillusioned with himself. He was disillusioned with other people. And he was disillusioned with God. And God speaks up. 
God meets him in that moment because God, he likes to meet us in those moments. Uh, God isn't scared of those emotions when we have them. God isn't scared of our honesty when we tell God, hey, God, this is, this is how I'm feeling. This is where I'm at. This is what's going on down there on the inside. You already know about it, so I'm just gonna go ahead and just speak it so I make sure that I know about it. God met Jeremiah in that moment to call him out of the fog of overwhelm that he was in. He was overwhelmed by the way things were. He was overwhelmed by the way things seemed to be heading. And so God says, I need you, Jeremiah, to have a renewed perspective. And perhaps that's what God is saying to us through this season, maybe in this series. Maybe God was saying this before we ever talked about it here at the creek, that God has called you, God has called me, God is calling the church in this moment to a renewed perspective. And a renewed perspective is that moment when we can step back and look at the same thing we've been looking at, but see it in a different way. That's what a renewed perspective is. Jeremiah had been looking at the situation and the way that he was looking at the situation was fueling all the emotions and all the reactions that he was having. And they were very unhealthy and they were very unproductive. And God says, Jeremiah, you need to step back. You need to take a breath and you need to look at what you've been looking at, but you need to see it in a different way. You need a renewed perspective because the type of perspective that you need, it will bring clarity to both your thoughts and your emotions, Jeremiah. Uh, this perspective that you need to adopt, this new perspective, this is, gonna, this is gonna shape your future actions and reactions. Uh, this is what God was doing in Jeremiah chapter 12. He was inviting Jeremiah to a perspective of purpose. And I think maybe that's what God's word for the church is at this moment. That's what God's word for you is. That's what God's word for me is that he's calling us to a perspective of purpose. Because when we lose a perspective of purpose, it's easy to walk away. It's easy to walk away from whatever it is. It's easy to walk away when you have no perspective of purpose. It's easy to forfeit, it's easy to quit, it's easy to get distracted and to lose focus. When you and I, when we lose our perspective of purpose, we disengage, we withdraw, we become selfish, we become small-minded, we live small lives, and we live for the small stuff. Uh, without a perspective of purpose, our lives, it, it begins to grow hollow and more hollow and more hollow, and we die slowly from the inside out, the worst type of death. Not physical death, but a death that comes about from not having any sense of purpose. And when you have no perspective of purpose and when the church loses its perspective of purpose in the world, in the political climate, in our nation, on our planet, when we lose our perspective of purpose in our families, in our community, where it is, whatever it pertains to, when we lose our perspective of purpose, our lives eventually get hijacked. Hijacked by less meaningful agendas, pursuits, and distractions. And that's where Jeremiah was, and God was calling him to something better. God was calling him to something more meaningful and something more significant. He was calling him back to purpose, the purpose for which he was born. God was tapping Jeremiah on the shoulder and maybe even slapping him on the cheek ever so gently to say, hey, big boy, snap out of it. You, you, you need to pull away from the temptation to live an average life. Anybody can live an average life. That's why they call it average. It's easy to fall into the temptation to live easy and to do nothing difficult or hard. It's easy to fall into the temptation of don't do anything significant because it's risky or you know you should just settle for mediocrity because that's who you are. That's who your family's always been and what do you have to offer? Anybody can settle for that. 
But this was God's way of knocking at Jeremiah's door to say, Jeremiah, I am calling you back to the fundamental belief of life. One of the most fundamental beliefs of life, that a life, one life, your life, Jeremiah, can make a difference. And I think that's what I wanna remind myself of. That's what I wanna remind us of. That's, that's what I hope the church in 2020 doesn't lose sight of. I hope we don't lose our perspective of purpose. And I hope that we understand this fundamental, this fundamental belief of life. This fundamental, fundamental belief of life that says, a life, one life, your life, it can make a difference. A life, one life, your life. The person sitting beside of you, the person sitting in front of you, the person sitting behind you, despite what your history is, despite what your story is, despite what your level of education, socioeconomic, whatever it is, no matter who, no matter what, a life, your life can make a difference. And if we as the church stop believing that we can make a difference, and I'm not talking about in the political arena, I'm talking about something far more transcendent and something far more lasting and something far more important. If we stop believing that we can make a difference, if you stop believing that you, you alone, you as an individual can make a difference, the church forfeits ground that we could advance the kingdom of God. And this is what God's saying to Jeremiah, and I think it's what God's saying to us. And so, you know, the question is, well, what did Jeremiah do with it? Well, he manned up. He put on his big boy pants. He took his thumb out of his mouth. He put aside the pacifier. He stopped pouting. He stopped being so sensitive. And he embraced his purpose. He stood his post. He played his part. And that's what you find throughout the book of Jeremiah. That's what you find in the book of Lamentations. That's what you find the historians writing about in Chronicles when they reference Jeremiah and his ministry. He embraced his purpose, he picked himself up. It's not that you fall down and have a bad moment. It's that you pick yourself up and you move on after your bad moment. He embraced his purpose, he stood his post. He didn't go AWOL, he wasn't missing, he didn't abdicate his responsibility or his duty, he didn't walk away, he played his part. He found his lane and he ran in it. And the epitaph of Jeremiah's life, if, if we could all go to where Jeremiah is buried and if there were a headstone there, I think the epitaph could simply read, Jeremiah, he ran with horses. He didn't settle, he didn't coast, he didn't give up. He didn't embrace average. He did something meaningful, he did something significant. That's what we would find on his headstone. So I think when we look at his life, and this is really the last time I get to talk about Jeremiah in this series, and I, I think it's, I've been stuck on Jeremiah for over a year. I, I keep on coming back to him in my personal reading. I, I keep finding myself reading about him, reading his writings, studying his life. And, and, and it really is fascinating. And there's so much I could say about it, but there's a few things that stick out to me that I think we can learn some things from. First thing is this, he had courage propped up by perseverance. If we were to say, hey, what does it mean to run with horses? I think running with horses means that you have courage propped up by perseverance. 23 years, he would say, that I've been preaching, I've been you know, asking people to turn back to God. He said, 23 years, people haven't listened. He had the courage to stand up, he had the courage to stand alone, and he had the courage to keep standing, and he had the perseverance to keep standing when no one would listen to him and when it didn't seem to be making any difference. He had courage propped up by perseverance because if you're gonna run with horses, 
There are gonna be seasons, there's gonna be days, there may even be years of your life where you believe you're making no headwind, you're making no progress, you're not making a difference. But running with horses is having the courage to keep doing what you need to be doing and having the perseverance not to give up. That's what it means. Second thing we see in Jeremiah is this, that he had conviction mingled with compassion. He spoke the truth, but never without a tone of grace and love. He wasn't known as the angry prophet, he was known as the compassionate prophet. That, that's how he was known. He had conviction, he had compassion. In, in the American church in the 20 and 21st century, there's this real tendency to overreact that every time the church talked a lot about compassion, people heard, oh, you don't want us to have conviction. And then anytime people talked a lot about conviction, people forgot about compassion. But you gotta hold on to both at the same time with the same grip because both is equally important. You don't give up conviction for the sake of compassion and you don't give up compassion for the sake of conviction. It's not easy to hold on to both. It's easy, really, easier, easiest to let go of one and just go that way. It's easiest just to be compassionate. It's easiest just to have conviction, but to have both? Well, that requires running with some horses. That requires some effort. That requires some thoughtfulness. That requires some self-restraint. Third thing, he had realism infused with hope. He wasn't pie in the sky. He didn't have his head in the sand. He didn't sugarcoat how things really were, nor did he allow how things really were to stifle his belief that in the future, God was going to do something good and better. He acknowledged the current reality. He looked around and he said, you know what? Some of this just sucks. Some of this is terrible. Some of this is just, I feel like all hell's being poured out all the way around us. And he just acknowledged it. He called it what it was. He pointed it out as ugly and as bad and as terrible as it was. But at the same time, he continues to cast vision for the potential of the future. The present did not discourage him concerning what he believed God was gonna do in the future. And he believed that God was gonna keep every single one of his promises. And that those promises were windows into the future of what God was yet to do. And so when you put all this together, and there's so much more I could say, but I, they only give me a certain amount of time. And, and so I could say a lot more, but when you put it all together and, and you, you form Jeremiah's lasting legacy, here's what I think his legacy is. He did what he could, when he could, with what he had. That, that was his life. He did what he could, he couldn't do everything. But he did what he could, he did it when he could because sooner or later, the avenue of opportunity, the window of opportunity, it closes. There's a roadblock. So he did what he could, when he could, with what he had. You can't do what you can't do with what you don't have which is where so many of us like to spend our lives. We wanna get discouraged because we can't do with what we don't have. When we ought to just pull back and get a perspective and says, you know what, I, I'm gonna be determined to do what I can when I can with what I've got. Because I can't possibly be expected by anybody or God to do what I can't with what I don't have. So you and me and us, that's where we've gotta live at. That, that's where we gotta get to is, I know me, I know what I've got, I know the opportunity that I've got, and I'm gonna do what I can while I can with what I've got. And I've gotta, let, I've gotta leave the rest to God. And you've gotta leave the rest to God because he's got the rest of it. And what you can't do, someone else can do. And what you don't have, somebody else has. And we're just gonna hope everybody gets on the same page to do what we can while we can with what we've got. And that's what he did, that, that was his 
legacy. As one writer said it, and I love this, that he was a towering life, terrifically lived. That he used his relationships, he used his experience, he used his gifts, his words, his creativity, his courage, his intellect. He, he used it all to further the purpose of God in his generation. That's what he did. Now, when I read the scripture and you read the whole scripture and you take the whole story of scripture, because you just can't get lost in Jeremiah and you just can't get lost in Lamentations and you just can't get lost in the history of Israel because there's a big story playing out. The story of the scripture, and if you don't believe the scriptures and you don't love the scriptures, it may be just because you've never read it or because you don't understand the story of it. Because the story of scripture is one large story. It begins in Genesis and it ends with the culmination of all things at the end of the New Testament in the book of Revelation. And when you take the whole story, this one big story, and you allow Jeremiah to play his part, to do what he could while he could with what he had, you find out what his greatest contribution was. You find out what he was able to do in his generation that affected you and affected me and really the whole world around us owe him a debt of gratitude. The greatest accomplishment in my opinion, in my opinion that Jeremiah was able to do in his lifetime, he taught the captives how to be Jewish in Babylon. He taught them in a world and a culture that didn't share their views and their values, how to be God's people amidst, in the midst of people who were not God's people. How to stay true to their values in the midst of a people who did not share their values. How to maintain their definitions of right and wrong and good and bad amongst a people who did not share those definitions of good and bad and right and wrong. This was Jeremiah's contribution. And that's what we talked about last week that he wrote to them and he said, okay, here's how you remain Jewish in Babylon because here's the thing. They're eventually coming back to Israel the people of God are. But while they're in Babylon, they do not lose their national identity. They do not lose their values. They do not lose their faith. And because they did not lose their identity, all was not lost because if they had lost their identity as the people of God in Babylon, the promise that God had made to Abraham that out of his descendants would come a great nation and out of that nation, the whole world would be blessed by the birth of one of his descendants. If Israel had been lost into oblivion, if they had just faded off into the horizon in Babylon, the promise of the Messiah would have been lost because it's gonna be out of the nation of Israel that the Messiah is gonna be ushered into the world. So Jeremiah helps preserve the promise. He helps preserve the lineage of God's people so that they can come back from Babylon, maintain their identity, and in a few centuries, see the birth of a baby in a Judean village by the name of Bethlehem. That's the larger story, and that's the contribution that Jeremiah has because we've all been touched by the life of that baby born in Bethlehem, that carpenter's son, Jesus from Nazareth. It was because Jeremiah kept that line uninterrupted that all of us, just as God promised Abraham, we have been blessed. And so the whole world really owes Jeremiah a debt of gratitude, especially for those of us who follow Jesus. This is how important the exile was. And th th these are words Eugene Peterson wrote, and these are so helpful. And I, I, just, couldn't, I just couldn't make myself not share them. And, and this is what he says about it. He says, they, Israel, they settled down to find out what it meant to be God's people in the place they did not want to be, in Babylon. Because it's easy to be God's people where you wanna be, right? Or at least it's easier. 
The result was that this became the most creative period in the entire sweep of Hebrew history. They did not lose their identity, they discovered it. They learned how to pray in deeper and more life-changing ways than ever. They wrote and copied and pondered the vast revelation that had come down to them from Moses and the prophets and they came to recognize the incredible riches of their own scripture. They found that God was not dependent on a place, not the Temple Mount, not Jerusalem, not Israel. He was not tied to familiar surroundings. The violent dislocation of the exile shook them out of their comfortable but reality-distorting assumptions and allowed them to see depths and heights that they had never even imagined before. They lost everything that they thought was important and found what was most important, God. He goes on to say, the exile was the crucible of Israel's faith. They were pushed to the edge of existence. And I love this because this is how a lot of Christians feel right now. We, we feel in the American church in the, you know, the 21st century, we're, we're being pushed to the edge. We're being ostracized. We're being exiled. We're no longer welcomed in the public square. Our faith no longer wants to be talked about in the public square. And we're being exiled and we're being pushed to the edge. Listen to these words. They were pushed to the edge of existence where they thought they were hanging on by the skin of their teeth. And they found that in fact, they had been pushed to the center where God was. He says, exile was the worst that reveals the best. And then he quotes Faulkner. He says, it's hard to believe, but disaster seems to be good for people. When the superfluous is stripped away, we find the essential and the essential is God. Now, what if that was not only true then, because it certainly was true then, what if it's true now? What if in us and the feeling that you have and the feeling that the church has been talking about for the last few decades, we're not welcome, it's not the same, we can't talk the way we used to talk, we can't say what we used to say, and we're being pushed to the edge. What if this is the moment that God is actually pushing us to the center where he's at? What if this is the moment that we stop trusting in all the political mechanisms and legislation and policy to be the savior of the world? And we get back to trusting God and his purpose for us. Now, when you open up the pages of the New Testament, we find that the Babylonians have given way to the Persians and the Persians have given way to Greece and Alexander the Great and his great conquest to Hellenize the world. And Greece gave way to Rome, a republic that transitioned to an empire under Caesar Augustus that we were introduced to in the first pages of the Gospels of Luke. The Caesar Augustus has turned Rome from a republic to an empire and now once again there's an empire and Roman influence and Greek influence are everywhere. And yet in the midst of all of this Greek and Roman influence being everywhere, including right there in Israel, we are introduced to a carpenter from Nazareth who's emerging onto the pages of history, who is claiming to be a king over a kingdom that is not of this world. He's refused to side with Rome. He's refused to side with the temple. He has sided with himself and he has invited people to follow him. And in following him, they were gonna become part of his kingdom. And when they decided to be part of his kingdom, this is the story of the gospels. Jesus began to teach his followers the values and the ethic of the kingdom of God. He says, this is what it looks like not to be American, not to be European, not to be Oriental. This is what it means to be a Jesus follower. These are your values and these are the ethics that you are to embrace and be most loyal to above all. Even when it conflicts with your politics, even when it conflicts with your nationalism, 
even when it conflicts with family or friends, and especially when it conflicts with yourself. You are to have allegiance to the kingdom of God above all other allegiances. And so Jesus, like Jeremiah, because don't forget, in the New Testament, Jesus, when they ask, you know, Jesus asked, who do people say that I am? One of the people that people said Jesus reminded them of was Jeremiah. So Jeremiah and Jesus obviously had a lot in common in their disposition and the way that they were known among people. And so like Jeremiah, Jesus begins to help his followers understand how to live out their faith among the kingdoms of men while they are a part of the kingdom of God. That's what Jeremiah was doing for the exiles in Babylon. That's what Jesus was trying to do for these new exiles, these Christians that were gonna be sent out into the world to represent, to be citizens of the kingdom of God, living among the kingdoms of men. And so what does Jesus do? It's like he pulled the page out of Jeremiah's playbook. He gives them a perspective of purpose. And what does he do in the Sermon on the Mount? He looks at you, he looks at me, he looks at them and he says, let me tell you who you are because your identity will help you understand your responsibility. You'll never fully understand your responsibility as a follower of Christ until you understand your identity as a follower of Christ. So let me go ahead and tell you who you are. You are salt. You're to be the salt of the earth. Now, uh, we could talk about salt for a long time and, and it's deeper than just him saying salt because there were a lot of application for salt and a lot of different you know, knowledge points that we could talk about when it comes to salt. But we all kind of understand that too much is not helpful and too little is not helpful. You put too much on a great steak, it's not a great steak anymore. You put too little on a great steak, it's not a great steak yet. He says, so you're salt and you gotta do the hard work of knowing how much to be and how little to be. He never promised it was gonna be easy and he never promised simplicity. He says, this is gonna be a lot of trial and error and sometimes you're gonna salt too much and wish you hadn't and sometimes you're gonna salt too little and wish you'd poured a little more. But you gotta do the diligent hard work because if you're gonna run with horses like Jeremiah, you gotta be salt and there can't be too much and there can't be too little. It's gotta be like baby bear's porridge, just, 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 just right. And where the church has gone off the rails over the past 50, 60 years in our country, we've not got the ratio of salt right. We got some churches with too little salt, some churches with too much salt, not enough churches with just the right amount of salt. Because this is the hard lane to run in. It's easy to go light on salt, not offend anybody and not make anybody uncomfortable. And it's really just as easy to go too much on salt and tick off everybody. But it's really difficult to be here and then he called them light. And again, too much is helpful. I mean, too much can be harmful. Too little, not very helpful, but light, it shows the way it draws attention. He says, you're salt and you're light. This is how you're supposed to be in the world. This is how you are citizens of the kingdom of God among the kingdoms of men. And here's what Jesus was saying. You are agents of profound change. It's not a cliche. You are a person who is supposed to bring change to the world. Imagine, imagine a dinner. Imagine, imagine a great dinner. Great food. Great setting. But no light, no salt. Jesus said that's what the world is going to feel like and look like without you being who you are. And without you doing what you're supposed to do. You take something that isn't really great at all, but you bring light to it, you bring salt to it, and all of a sudden, it's a feast. All of a sudden, there's joy. 
All of a sudden, everybody's happy. All of a sudden, there's all this goodness attached to it because you stepped up and you were salt and you were light. He said, that's who you are. This is how you live it out. And, and so Jesus, he, he taught them this, but he also modeled it for them. Uh, one of my favorite passages when Jesus modeled this, it says that Jesus went through all the towns and the villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. Now, all the towns, simple, but don't miss it, all the towns. No community of people were beneath Jesus' association with. Jesus did not fear guilt by association and there was no community that Jesus was willing to be cut off from. There was no community that Jesus was willing to stand against. Jesus sided with all the towns and communities. He went there. Every community has its own way, its own beliefs, its own culture. It's, it's just, it was then, it is now. But he was there, he was present, he was engaged, he was involved because Jesus knew and Jesus was teaching his followers. The only way to change things is to be involved, is to be engaged, and it's to be present. You can't change what you won't associate with. You can't change what you won't participate in. So Jesus said, if you're gonna be salt, there's gotta be contact, if there's gonna be light, you gotta direct it. And so for us as the church, there can't be any community of people who embrace any idea, who embrace any behavior that we cut ourselves off from. Because the only way to change things is to be salt and light, and the only way to be salt and light is to be present and to be engaged. We can't change a world that we back away from, and we cannot change a world that we refuse to participate in. And so it says that he gave them good news. Almost news that sounded too good to be true, that God loves you no matter who you are, no matter what you've done. That God's forgiveness is bigger than your failure and God's grace is bigger than the mess that you've created. And God doesn't care how far you've wandered, he just wants you to come back home. You know why they called it good news? Because when people heard it, they said to themselves, dang, that's good news. If that's true, that's good news. I grew up in a church, spent years in a church, decades in a church, and I don't know if I ever walked away on any one Sunday with this idea of, wow, that's great news. It was always kind of good, but there was always a downside. Now, it was just good news. If it doesn't sound like good news to the world, what we're talking about, maybe we don't understand the good news. Brennan Manning, I, I love this. Brennan Manning, in one of my favorite books, he, he says this. I, I don't think you can say it any better. He says, because salvation is by grace through faith, that's, that's the good news. I believe that among the countless number of people standing in front of the throne and in front of the lamb dressed in white robes holding palms in their hands, according to Revelation 7, verse 9, he says, I shall see the prostitute from the Kit Kat Ranch in Carson City, Nevada. Don't you just think that's a great name, the Kit Kat Ranch? Uh, I mean, you just automatically know they're not doing buffalo and bison and all that. I mean, it's, you just kind of know. He, he says, I'll see the prostitute from the Kit Kat Ranch in Carson City, Nevada, who tearfully told me she could find no other employment to support her two-year-old son. I shall see the woman who had an abortion and is haunted by guilt and remorse, but did the best she could face with the grueling alternatives. The businessman besieged with debt who sold his integrity in a series of desperate transactions. The insecure clergyman addicted to being liked who never challenged his people from the pulpit and longed for unconditional love. The sexually abused teen molested by his father and now selling his body on the street who as he falls asleep each night after his last trick whispers the name of the unknown God he learned about in Sunday school. The deathbed 
convert who for decades had his cake and ate it, broke every law of God and man, wallowed in lust and raped the earth. But how? How's that possible, we ask? And then the voice says, they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. There they are, there we are. The multitude who so, who so wanted to be faithful, who at times got defeated and soiled by life and bested by trials, wearing the bloodied garments of life's tribulations, but through it all clung to faith. And this is how he closes. He says, my friends, if this is not good news to you, you have never understood the gospel of grace. <laughs> now, can you imagine if that's how we were known, that kind of messaging? Jesus said, I went around and people said, man, that's good news. And then it goes on, it says, when he saw the crowds, he saw the people, he, he didn't see their habit, didn't see their decisions. He saw a group of people made in the image of God. He saw the people beyond their political affiliations, beyond their political stereotypes and labels. He stepped around all of that and he looked them in the eye. He saw them as who they were. He said he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He saw them as a group of people. He said, these people are drowning. They're not the problem. They're, they're trapped. They're enslaved. They can't help it. They can't fight against it. They're terrorized by sin. They're held by the clutches of sin. Look at them. They're harassed. They're helpless. They don't have a shepherd to help them. They don't have a leader. He didn't get angry. He didn't rage against the machine. He didn't blame it on Caesar. He didn't blame it on Caiaphas. He had compassion on them and he didn't condemn them. He loved them and invited them back to the father. A group of people who knew they were disappointments. They didn't act like they knew they were disappointments, but in their heart of hearts, they knew they were failures. They felt like garbage. The religious system of their day told them they were garbage. They weren't good at being good. But Jesus said, you know what? I'm patient. I'm not gonna demand that you keep up with me. I'm not gonna demand that you get everything as right as I've got right or that you see everything the way I see it because you're not there yet. And I'm gonna accommodate to your speed because my story is not your story. And I don't know the story with your mom and dad and I don't know what happened that night in college. And I don't know about those six years that were dark and hard. I don't know how close you came to jumping off the edge. I don't know that about you. But I'm just gonna look at you and try to look at you the way Jesus looked at people because he's giving us our marching orders. He's modeling for us what it looks like to be part of the kingdom of God amongst the kingdom of men. And then Jesus looks at them after all of this and says, okay, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. And this is interesting because <laughs> he didn't see a problem. American political Christians, that's all we see are problems. Republican Christians see Democrat, problem. Democrat Christians, and I know some of you Republicans, you have a hard time believing there's such a thing as a Democrat Christian, but they are. And those Democrats have a hard time believing sometimes there's a Republican Christian, but there are. And they look at Republicans, that's the problem. Or that group over there who says this, or that group of people over here says that. Jesus didn't see problems, he saw an opportunity. He saw an opportunity for the kingdom of God to gain ground. He said, look at this mess. It's a field ready for harvest. This is a field to work and this is a harvest to win. So let's don't bellyache. Let's not complain. Let's not wring our hands and say, oh Lord, the world's going to hell in a handbasket and what are we gonna do? And they may not like us anymore and they may persecute us and what are we gonna do if we lose our opportunity? Snap out of it, Jesus would say. You're not seeing it the way you need to see it. 
Step back, look at the same thing, but see it differently. That's a field. It's an opportunity. Those people you love, they're not people to love. That's a field for harvest. What kind of farmer hates the harvest? What kind of farmer hates his field? What kind of farmer goes out there and works super hard and says, you know what? I'm not gonna go back because I just hate that place. Hate those crops. He said, don't do that. Don't do that. He saw potential. He saw an opportunity. And there he says, so ask, ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. He says, I need you to see what I see. I need you to have my perspective. I need you to see an opportunity, not a problem. I need you to see an opportunity and not a problem. I think maybe Jesus would say the same thing to us. I need you to just look around, look at the world, look at the trajectory, see it as an opportunity. Because if you're gonna follow me, I'm gonna need you to see the field that is white for harvest. This is your perspective of purpose. You are sought, you are light, and you are to work and win the harvest. I need you to see everyone as someone God made. I need you to see everyone as someone God loves, and I need you to see everyone as someone that Jesus died for. I don't care if they're Republican or Democrat. I don't care if they're the Speaker of the House. I don't care if they're the Senate Majority or Minority Leader. I don't care if it's the President of the United States. I don't care if it's the Cabinet. I don't care who it is. I don't care if it's the guy down the street. I don't care if it's the guy across the hall from you at work. I need you to know that everyone is someone God made. Everyone is someone God loves and everyone is someone that Jesus died for. And if that doesn't change your emotional feelings toward the world that you are in, Jesus, I think would say, I just don't know what would. Democrats, someone God made, someone God loves, someone Jesus died for. Republicans, same thing, God made, God loves, Jesus died for. Protesters, politicians, keep on taking it on down the line. Someone Jesus made, someone Jesus died for, someone Jesus loves. It's just, that's the reality. And when we start not liking that reality, and when we try to start pushing back against that reality, I, I, I fear for what's happened in our hearts. So he says that everyone is someone, and then he, he tells them in the next chapter, he says, you get this perspective, let, let, me, let me tell you about your purpose. Look, I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. <laughs> Don't you wish you would have said, I'm sending you out as wolves among the sheep. This doesn't sound promising. This doesn't sound sexy, powerful. Not a lot of people sign up for that. Hey, I'm gonna send you out as sheep among the wolves. You're gonna be the prey and they are the predator. Remember biology? Eh. The prey, you don't wanna be. The predator, good place to be. You wanna be at the top of that chain. You, you follow me, you're not at the top of that chain. I'm sending you out, so you better be shrewd as snakes and harmless as doves, because if not, you're gonna get swallowed up and spit out. If not, you're gonna quit and walk away and forfeit and you're gonna have your shirt sleeves all mingled with emotions and you're gonna walk away with your thumb in your mouth and you're gonna get ticked off and fed up about every little thing going on in the cockamamie world around you. He says, you, you gotta go out there and know how high the stakes are. You are sheep among wolves and you gotta be shrewd as a snake, harmless as a dove. Because if not, you're not gonna run with a horse. It's not gonna work out well for you. I'm sending you out into a culture 
Listen to what Jesus was saying and listen to how relevant. I'm sending you out into a culture that has different definitions of good and bad and right and wrong than what you will have. That's where we've always been as the church. That's where we started out as the church. Heading out into a world that does not share our definitions of what is good and what is bad and what is right and what is wrong. Jesus looked at his followers and said, I'm sending you out into a world that doesn't value women, that doesn't value children. I'm sending you out into a world where not everyone is seen as being equal. I'm sending you out into a culture that disdains compassion. I'm sending you out into a culture where slavery is self-evident, where sexism is self-evident, where racism and classism those are the things that are self-evident. I'm sending you out in a world where slavery makes perfect sense in the minds of men and women. Where it makes perfect sense in the minds of men to treat women like property. Where it makes perfect sense that if you give birth to a daughter, to leave her out into the wilderness so that the animals will kill her and you don't have to raise her. He says, I'm sending you out into that self-evident world where all of that is normal and where right makes right. I'm sending you out into a world that's not Christian, pre-Christian. And I'm not sending you out to yell at Caesar. He's Caesar. He's not you. He's not a citizen of your kingdom. So lay off of Caesar, would you? Quit wanting Caesar to be your fan. He's not going to be your biggest fan. Don't go out there and rage against Augustus. He's a Roman pagan. What do you expect him to do? So just know your place. Know how you're gonna advance this thing. I'm not sending you out to demand your rights because <laughs> you have none. He didn't encourage the disciples, hey, here's what I want you to do. I want you to form a PAC, a political action committee, and I want you to get a bunch of money together and I want you to start lobbying for change. No, because there was no such thing as a voting block for those people. But how in the world were they gonna change the world? with no money, no power, no territory, any of that. And it's a cliche, but it's a cliche because it's true. They changed it with love. Jesus taught his followers the most important thing to God was how we loved people. Say, yeah, I've heard it before. Yeah, well, we haven't got it yet. I don't have it yet. Yeah, but that's so simple <laughs> that it's very demanding. Jesus said, you're gonna prove your love for God by how you love your neighbor because I'm gonna recenter your idea of faith and your idea of faith is no longer centered around sacrifices, belief, or morality. Your core part of your faith is centered around God and how you treat people. At the heart of your relationship with God is people. So I'm gonna recenter your faith so that you can understand that the most important thing about your faith is how you love your neighbor. That's what Jesus taught. Jesus took his disciples a few nights later, that was on Tuesday and on Thursday, he took his disciples to the upper room and you know that story. And there in the upper room, he, he began to wash the feet of his disciples, Peter who would deny him and Thomas who would doubt him and Judas who would betray him. I mean, who does that? He washed their feet even as they were arguing about who was gonna be the biggest and the best in the kingdom and have the best seat beside of Jesus in the kingdom to come. And he washes their feet. And then he looks at them and says, I've given you an example to follow, so do as I've done to you. Because he's teaching us how to live out our faith 
as citizens of the kingdom of God amongst the kingdoms of men. And then he takes it a little bit further and he says, okay, in case you don't have it yet, a new commandment I give to you, love one another as I've loved you, so you must love one another. And by this, everyone will know that you are my disciple if you love one another. So don't miss this, because this is where we'll pick it up next week. Jesus called his followers then and now to have a loyalty to love, a loyalty that was above all other loyalties. That our greatest loyalty was a loyalty to love God and to love people the way that Jesus had loved us. That's what Jesus taught his disciples. That's what Jesus modeled for his disciples. And when they looked at Jesus, they began to learn what love was, that love was a choice. They saw in Jesus a choice to put other people first and themselves behind everybody else. They saw in Jesus this idea of love that says, I am less important than you. I mean, how counterintuitive can it be? You are always more important than me. That's what they saw in Jesus. He called them to this loyalty, to that type of love. They learned from Jesus that not only are you more important than me, but whatever is best for you, that's what's best for me to do. Whatever is good for you is good for me to do. And if you can't and I can, then I will because you can't. I'm gonna do what's best for you, even when it hurts me. I'm gonna do what is right for you and what is best for you, even though it rips my guts out, even though it may be the last thing that I wanna do. They learn from Jesus that love is drawing near, it's not pulling away. Love is getting your hands dirty. It's getting down there in the mess. It's inconvenient, it's hard. It's not an overnight process. It's going long-term. They learn the type of love that says, you know what? I'm not gonna do anything that may cause you to regret something. I'm not gonna do anything that may wound your conscience. Because if it's not good for you, it's not good. If it's not best for you, it's not best because you can't harm your neighbor and love them at the same time. They looked at Jesus and this is what they understood. They understood that love fights for the relationship, that love forgives, that love doesn't hold on to the grudges, that love refuses to stereotype or label. They looked at Jesus and they learned a type of love that they were themselves to show. And so the message of Jesus left Jerusalem and into Judea and to Samaria and even to the uttermost parts of the world, even to Rome. And the message of Jesus spread like a pandemic. And in the second century, a bishop in North Africa, he wrote this. He said, it is mainly the deeds of a love so noble that lead many to put a brand upon us. He said, this is what they say about us Christians. See how they love one another, they say, for they themselves are animated by mutual hatred, how they are ready even to die for one another. They looked at Christians and saw them running into cities where people were dying with plague. One bishop said in 251, he says, we can't heal, but the one thing we can do, we can love and we can care for those who are dying. Christians took care of their poor and also took care of the poor that wasn't even part of the church. They took care of their own and they took care of the pagans as well. Later on in the 300s, the Emperor Julian, I wish I could tell you the whole story, but 
He wanted to wipe out Christianity and revive paganism, but he couldn't because he said, you know what? The way these people treat strangers, the way they care for their own, there's not one among them begging for bread. Look at how they love each other. Christians elevated women, rescued children who were left behind in the woods and raised them as their own. And the rest is history. And out of the movement of Jesus, Jesus followers who took their cue of love from Jesus, out of that movement of Jesus followers came hospitals and healthcare for all. Healthcare for all was a Christian idea in the early centuries. We're gonna build hospitals because right now only the wealthy can get healthcare. Only soldiers can get healthcare. So we're gonna build hospitals and healthcare and we're gonna offer it for all. We're gonna offer quality education and literacy for all people because it's in their benefit. We're for equality of all people because it's for our benefit. We're for the dignity of all people, women and children, every ethnicity because it's in our benefit. Christians were on the front side of the advancement of the arts and sciences. They were advocating for the highest standards of justice. They were deconstructing case systems. They were regarding all human life as equally valuable. They were concerned with the poor and they elevated this idea of compassion. That's our story as a church. Once upon a time, love changed the world. How we loved made what we believed more believable. And if we're gonna change it again, it'll be the way we changed it the first time. Christians changed the world by doing good deeds and sharing good news. No matter who, no matter what, come on in. No matter how far you've gone, come on back. They didn't see people as enemies. They saw people as a harvest. They saw people God made and God loved and Jesus died for. And they had good news. As we said a moment ago, because salvation is by grace through faith, I believe that among the countless number of people standing in front of the throne, in front of the lamb, dressed in white robes, holding palms in their hands, I shall see the prostitute from the Kit Kat Ranch in Carson City, Nevada, who tearfully told me she could find no other employment to support her two-year-old son. I shall see the woman who had an abortion and is haunted by guilt and remorse, but did the best she could, faced with grueling alternatives and the businessman besieged with debt who sold his integrity in a series of desperate transactions. The insecure clergyman addicted to being liked who never challenged his people and longed for unconditional love. The sexually abused teen molested by his father, selling his body on the street who falls asleep each night after his last trick and whispers the name of the unknown God that he learned about in Sunday school. The deathbed convert for decades had his cake and ate it too, broke every law of God and man and wallowed in lust and raped the earth. But how, but how they'll ask, but how sometimes we ask. And then the voice says, they've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. There they are, there we are. The multitudes who so wanted to be faithful who at times got defeated, soiled by life, bested by trials, wearing the bloodied garments of life's tribulations, but through it all clung to faith, my friends. If this is not the good news, if this doesn't sound like good news to you, we have never understood the gospel of grace. Let's get back to love that says, we're gonna be a people who do good deeds and tell the good news. And that's as close as we're gonna get to being irresistible at this moment, this time, this place. Heavenly Father, Father, I pray that you just let it land where it needs to land. Speak what you need to speak. No one's claiming to have this figured out. 
No one's claiming that it's easy. But God, we need this renewed perspective of purpose and we need this loyalty to love above all else. And may they look at us and the first thing they talk about when they talk about us is look at how they love each other. Look at how they're willing to lay down their lives for each other. God, help us to get this right for your sake and for the sake of those who need to hear the good news. In Jesus' name.